You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This is being recorded on the 18th of November for the listening week that begins the 19th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. First few articles this week come via Afro News from Baltimore, Maryland, established 1892. And the first one is a tribute to the founder, posted in June. John Henry Murphy, Sr., slave, soldier, seer, media maven. This is written by Tashi McQueen and Kara Thompson, special to the Afro. John Henry Murphy, Sr. might have been born a slave, but he died a giant of the black press. The founder of the Afro-American newspaper was born on December 25, 1840, in Baltimore. Born to Benjamin Murphy III, a whitewasher, and Susan Colby Murphy, a housewife, his life's work would help change the trajectory of a race of people newly freed after shedding the bonds of chattel slavery. He enlisted in the military at age 24 during the Civil War and progressed to the rank of sergeant by the end of the conflict. Upon returning home to Maryland in 1868, Murphy married Martha Elizabeth Howard. Murphy was interested in the role of the church as it pertained to the education of African-American schoolchildren and worked with the Sunday school at the Bethel, Afri Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church. He would later become superintendent of the district Sunday school in Hagerstown, Maryland. To help with instruction at the Sunday school, Murphy began to publish a school newspaper with a manual printing press called the Sunday School Helper. In 1892, a local pastor started a rival newspaper, titled The Afro-American, to promote his own church. But by the end of the year, Murphy bought The Afro-American with $200 from his wife and merged the two papers. Together, they created a platform to offer images and stories of hope to advance their community. The Afro provided readers with good news about the black community not otherwise found, but they also helped the community keep a pulse on political happenings that directly affected black Americans. Early editions of the Afro's National Edition, available in the Afro Archives Virtual Vault, show that the publication was reporting on happenings in the U.S. Treasury and U.S. Senate at the turn of the 20th century. Murphy kept readers updated on political fights happening not just in Maryland. In 1902, he had journalists reporting on the new Virginia Constitution. According to the Library of Virginia, which virtually displays the original 1776 Virginia Constitution and every version of the document between the years 1831 and 1971, the 1902 edition was created during a convention of men determined, quote, to disenfranchise African-American voters. The men were successful. 
They cut down the freedom of black men by imposing a poll tax and complicated registration regulations that allowed registrars to deny registration to just about any man they did not want to vote, according to the library. In December 1902, Murphy used the paper to keep a written record of how the Supreme Court of the United States refused to intervene on behalf of African-American voters. From Virginia to London and Paris, the Afro kept the conversation of black liberation going right here from Charm City. Baltimore was just the center of a long civil rights movement, said Larry Peskin, history and geography professor at Morgan State University. He went on, people like Murphy and Lily Carroll Jackson, they were really central to the early civil rights movement of Baltimore. The Afro-American was mostly staffed by unpaid family members in the beginning, but popularity of the publication allowed Murphy to quickly expand papers employees to nearly 100 workers by the 1920s. Murphy died on April 5, 1922. At the time of his death, the Afro was the most widely circulated African-American newspaper on the Atlantic coast. It was so popular amongst black America that Langston Hughes, academic J. Saunders Redding, artist Ramar Bearden, and sports editor Sam Lacey, whose column influenced the desegregation of professional sports, contributed over the years. Two years before his death, Murphy, in a letter to his sons, further details the mission and purpose of the Afro. He said, A newspaper succeeds because its management believes in itself, in God, and in the present generation. It must always ask itself whether it has kept faith with the common people, whether it has no other goal except to see that their liberties are preserved and their future assured whether it is fighting to get rid of slums to provide jobs for everybody, whether it stays out of politics except to expose corruption and condemn injustice, race prejudice, and the cowardice of compromise. The Afro-American must become a semi-weekly, then a tri-weekly, and eventually, when advertising warrants, a daily. It has always had a loyal constituency which believes it to be honest, decent, and progressive. It is that kind of newspaper now, and I hope that it never changes. It is to these high hopes and goals of achievement that the people who make your Afro have dedicated themselves. God willing, they shall not fail. Signed, John H. Murphy, Sr. Today, the Afro remains one of the oldest operating black family-owned newspapers in the country. It is led by fourth and fifth generation descendants of Murphy Sr. and continues to provide readers with good news about the black community not otherwise found. And this one, published on November 18th, written by Ron Taylor as a special to the Afro, and Alexis Taylor, who is the Afro news editor. From cold type to the digital arena, a salute to Denise Dorsey. When Denise Dorsey entered the world of journalism production, 
Ideas and images were transferred from writer's typewriters to a printed page in a belabored process that dated back centuries. Now, thoughts surface on a palm-sized device, and production teams can send entire publications to a printer with the click of a button. Though the tsunami of tech innovation left no part of the globe untouched, Dorsey rode the wave into a media production career that has stretched five decades. She is now among the millions of baby boomers who met the evolution of technology and didn't back down. In fact, she excelled. When Dorsey started at the Afro, the production process was more than a bit laborious. The dedication and persistence it took to produce even one edition of the paper was nothing short of an act of love for black press to keep black Americans informed. The Afro, like all printed publications of the day, used a system of hot type in the 1900s and cold type in the 20th century. Baltimoreans can take a look at the hot type process by visiting the Baltimore Museum of Industry, where hot type demonstrations take place as part of an exhibit that includes items from the Afro-American newspapers. In the late 1800s, the most widely used production process included pressing molten metal into forms that created letters of the alphabet. The letters were then put together to compose words that would eventually be inked and printed onto paper. This was considered hot type. According to the University of Dayton in Ohio, cold type refers to any method of type composition other than hot type. Type is cold because hot lead is not used. Today's production process is completely digital, but Dorsey clearly recalls the processes of days gone by and says, Cold type was when they were actually typing things into a machine. It would come out in long strips of paper that they would send to the production floor. They would actually paste it up on the templates. We had templates like the template that we use now in the computer. It took a mighty team to make sure each article got onto the page correctly, and then there was the challenge of photographs. We had a dark room then, so of course there was no digital. The photographers had negatives, and they had to be processed. Once all of the pages for all of the unique editions pardon me, of the Afro were put together, a courier then had to come to the building, physically pick up the pages, and take them to a printer. Though she now is responsible for creating the cover and layout of the paper with production assistant Mishana Matthews, Dorsey started off in a smaller but yet important role. When I first came in 1976, I was only working on the advertising side, my job was making up ads and send, oh, pardon me, make marking up ads to send down to the typesetter. Dorsey eventually became more involved with creating the pages that kept black readers informed up and down the East Coast and beyond. Before long, she began helping the production team fill templates by pasting the articles and photographs together.
Today, Dorsey is no longer pasting together strips of paper to create each edition of the Afro. In the 1990s, the company began using computers in the production process with the help of two dedicated Afro women and others in the production department. She learned how to use digital platforms to create each page. They were instrumental in teaching me InDesign when we began using that instead of Quark. Both were great graphic designers and I learned a lot from them, said Dorsey. It would be remiss of me to not acknowledge all those who helped me. Aside from in-house support, Afro administrators sent their production team to the Maryland Institute College of Art to learn the finer points of producing a newspaper with new technology. They also had training from the Maryland, Delaware, and D.C. Press Associations. Dorsey said mastering technology on the production side of the newspaper business was key in surviving the tech evolution. She said mentors helped her hone her computer skills, which have paid off to this day. It kept me there while other positions were starting to be eliminated, said Dorsey. One of the women who was there in the early 2000s pardon me, helped set up the transition for us, sending the pages electronically and no longer needing a courier. When asked how she views the ever-evolving nature of technology in the newspaper industry, Dorsey expressed mixed feelings. She said, it's not a bad thing. It just means that the future, oh, pardon me, it just means that's the future. When computers came in, there were people who were upset. I wouldn't want to go back to how we were doing the paper, but a lot of people lost their jobs. Aside from InDesign, other graphic design and production applications Dorsey and Matthews use today are Photoshop and, on occasion, Acrobat. I find it very interesting to see everything that is available and what is coming in the future, said Dorsey. If the past is any indicator, she'll be mastering what's on the digital horizon, too. Dorsey says she will retire soon, but hopefully the Afro team can talk her out of it. And still reading from the Afro.com, this was posted on November 18th by Lenore T. Atkins. Arts and Entertainment, New York Film Festival that centers the black experience turns 30. The African Diaspora International Film Festival will celebrate its 30th anniversary in New York City in style with its largest film festival ever. The film festival running November 25th through December 11th boasts 89 documentary and fiction films from 44 different countries on seven silver screens. Diara Ndauspec, who is Afro-French, founded the festival with her Afro-Cuban husband, Reynaldo Barroso Speck, to challenge stereotypes about black people. They do this by scouring film festivals, trade shows, and submissions for socially relevant films that illuminate black people's richness, diversity, and human experience. They couple prefer film, oh, pardon me, the couple prefer films that aren't commercially available and tell stories that are difficult to find elsewhere. Dospeck said, We are really a festival of discovery. 
Thirty years ago, those films did not have a lot of visibility, and now, thirty years later, there's still a lot of discovery. Over the course of thirty years, the festival has become even richer by including stories about other people of color, including indigenous stories from places like Samoa. The film festival started in New York City, and through the years, the couple added several other cities, including Chicago, Paris, and Washington, D.C., for annual film festivals. The couple widened the festival's reach this year by partnering with various New York organizations to screen seven films across the city for free. These community screenings boast, pardon me, boost access to people who didn't know about the festival or wouldn't have been able to attend otherwise. These partnerships mean screenings will commence at Cinema Village, the Schomburg Center, the Baruch, pardon me, the Baruch Performing Arts at Baruch College, and the Boys and Girls Club of Harlem. Paid screenings will take place at Columbia University's Teachers College, Thalia Village, and Cinema Village. Prices per movie range from free to $30, depending on the screening or the event. This festival marks the first one the couple has held since the pandemic that will be in person without an online component. It's really something different when people are together, when there's an exchange of ideas, and Dospek said of the decision to hold the festival in person. Masks are recommended at all venues. Proof of vaccination will be required at Columbia University's Teacher College and Baruch College. The 44 countries represented include Algeria, Cuba, Germany, Guadalupe, uh, pardon me, France, New Zealand, South Africa, Peru, Senegal, the United Kingdom, and Zambia. But if you can't make it to the film festival for all of its 17 days, here are six films and Dospec says you shouldn't miss As Far As I Can Walk from 2021. Although no access dates are given for these films in this article. As Far As I Can Walk is a fictional story about a young couple from Ghana who flee to Serbia in search of a better life. This film earned the top prize at the Karlovy Vary International Film Festival, as well as dozens of awards elsewhere. Set in, oh, next, set in 1962 in Mali, soon after the country earns its independence from France, Dancing the Twist in Bamako from 2021 is a fictional story following a woman stuck in an arranged marriage who falls in love with a socialist. This happens against the backdrop of rock and roll music from the West wafting into Mali's capital city and encouraging the youth to learn the twist. From 2022, Executive Order is an authoritarian, a story of an authoritarian government in a dystopian future Brazil. about an executive order that sends all citizens of African descent to Africa to repay debts from slavery. But the order creates chaos, protests, 
and launches an underground resistance that spreads all over the country. The movie is a literal representation of the phrase, go back to Africa. And from 2021, Get Out Alive is an autobiographical musical about depression from Nikki Lynette, a Chicago artist and activist. From 2022, Brian Hurt, the filmmaker behind the documentary Hazing, investigates the dangerous practice on American college campuses by interviewing the loved ones of people who died from and survived hazing. It dives into the psychological impact of people who haze and those who are being hazed, why the tradition still persists, and how racism can infiltrate the process. Some folks are not happy he made that film because Hurt's putting it out for everyone to see some things that are sacred, said Ndaspec. From 2021, The Woodstock of House is a documentary about the birth of house music on the south side of Chicago and how it morphed from disco music that, by the 1970s, mainstream America had demonized for being too black, too Latin, and too gay. This film also highlights the annual Chosen Few Picnic and Festival. The House Music Festival takes place in July and draws more than 40,000 house heads to Jackson Park on Chicago's south side. Dawspeck said of this film, it's very informative and very entertaining. Moving now to other sources. This next article comes from the Washington Post. It was posted on November 16th, written by Leanna S. Wynn. It's an opinion piece. Keep an eye on Chiquita Brooks Lashore. She will be key to Biden's success. Chiquita Brooks Lashore might not yet be a household name, but expect to hear about her often in the coming months. That's because the agency she leads, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, is poised to take a prominent role in many of the Biden administration's top priorities on reforming the health care system. And she has an extraordinary opportunity to make significant headway. Earlier this week, I sat down with Brooks LaSure, the first black woman to lead CMS, to discuss the work ahead. Her scope is massive. Not only does she administer the federal Medicare program, but she also oversees state Medicaid, the Children's Health Insurance Program, and individual insurance marketplaces that run through the Affordable Care Act. She will also be implementing much of the Biden administration's agenda in health care, such as reining in the high cost of prescription drugs and improving health care access and affordability. This will be key for President Biden. During the midterm elections, he and his fellow Democrats touted their work to pass the Inflation Reduction Act, which contains multiple provisions to reduce the cost of prescription drugs. Nearly one in four Americans cite difficulties in paying for their medications. A recent study finds that 1.3 million patients with diabetes are rationing insulin because of its cost. But starting in January, insulin will become more affordable. 
Seniors enrolled in Medicare's drug coverage will receive it for $35 a month, a big improvement from the hundreds of dollars some patients currently pay. The Inflation Reduction Act contains another noteworthy provision. By 2025, prescription drug costs will be capped so that seniors will pay no more than $2,000 annually for their medications. Since the Senate confirmed Brooks LaSure a year and a half ago, she has encountered many people for whom the cost of medications is overriding concern. I met a woman whose husband's drug costs are over $17,000 a year, she told me. The cap of $2,000 will be a big game-changer for families like theirs. She will also be instrumental in delivering another hard-fought win for the Biden administration, lowering the price of prescription drugs in Medicare through direct negotiations with pharmaceutical companies. This is a seismic shift, as Congress has long forbidden Medicare from leveraging its purchasing power to obtain better deals. This is a major reason older adults in the United States pay much more for prescription drugs than their counterparts in other countries. Then there is the looming end of the public health emergency for the COVID-19 pandemic, for which CMS will also be at the forefront in managing the fallout. The emergency declaration helped Americans access free coronavirus vaccines and coverage for COVID-19 treatments. An important provision in the 2020 COVID-19 relief bill also required states to keep low-income families continuously enrolled in Medicaid throughout the emergency. At the moment, the emergency is slated to end on January 11, 2023, though the administration has signaled that it could extend, could be extended further. Brooks LaSure is very worried about people suddenly losing health care coverage. During COVID, the number of Americans enrolled in Medicaid and CHIP increased by more than 25%. When the emergency ends, states will begin redeterminations for eligibility. As many as 15 million people could lose their health insurance, including 6.8 million who are likely still eligible but may face administrative barriers to re-enrollment. Sometimes people move, or they miss a letter, or they don't fill out a form correctly, said Brooks LaSure. Keeping access needs to be an all-hands-on-deck effort. In the meantime, hospitals and providers are still recovering from the devastation of COVID. I've been moved by how fragile our health care system is, she told me. There are huge shortages of health care workers and tight margins. We need to build back the system in a much stronger way. This involves changing the way we pay for health care. For example, CMS is working with states to take a more holistic view by funding mental health support, housing, and nutrition. The agency also supports accountable care organizations that bring together doctors, hospitals, home health aides, and other health care providers to better care for vulnerable patients. Throughout this work, Brooks LaSure says she will focus on embedding equity as a core concept. 
COVID-19 has shown us that when there are innovations, the people who are better off are those who benefit the most, she said. Great health care coverage is not enough if the late, pardon me, if the least among us can't access it. As the United States emerges from the crisis of a once-in-a-generation pandemic, it's clear that the task of addressing the core issues of cost and access to health care is Herculean. Americans should be rooting for CMS and the woman at its helm to succeed in its push to achieve much-needed reforms. Next we have two articles from the New York Times. For Elvis Mitchell, critic-turned-filmmaker, a chance to show and tell. His new documentary on Netflix, Is That Black Enough For You? Spotlights Unsung Black Cinema of the 1970s. This was published November 11th, written by Reggie Ugwu. Elvis Mitchell has spent much of his life thinking, writing, and talking about movies, but the release of his own debut film is taking some time to sink in. He said, I made this thing and there are people in that room watching it right now, a little awestruck during a screening last month, of the documentary, Is That Black Enough For You?, which Mitchell directed, wrote, and executive produced. I don't know how to think about that. This still feels so close to me. The movie, a personal account of a pivotal era of black film in the late 60s and 70s, is a long time coming, weaving together more than 100 clips of indelible classics, Night of the Living Dead, Lady Sings the Blues, and Unheralded Gems, Uptight, Abar. It's based on decades of Mitchell's observations as a cinephile, scholar, and critic, including for New York Times, the New York Times, he left in 2004, and the Los Angeles public radio station KCRW. Originally conceived as a book, the film, streaming on Netflix, unfurls as part kaleidoscopic visual odyssey, part ruminative personal essay, illuminating a fruitful period of black cinematic expression that extended far beyond black exploitation. Over dinner in Greenwich Village, where Is That Black Enough For You was screening at the IFC Center, Mitchell discussed his long and somewhat inadvertent journey to feature filmmaking. Why 1968 changed everything for black people in films, and what meetings are like with David Fincher, one of the film's producers. These are edited excerpts from the conversation. You've been behind the camera before as a producer and host of the documentary series The Blacklist and Elvis Goes There, but this is your first time directing. How did it feel? It felt strangely comfortable. I remember asking Steven Soddenberg, the producer of Is That Black Enough For You, what it's like the first day of shooting, and he said, well, if you get a good night's sleep the night before, you're okay. It's a much more demanding job physically than you think. So you want to be well-rested. So I made sure I got some good sleep, but it was a strange baptism. We shot a lot of it during COVID with lots of safety precautions and after a long delay. And about the only person that it didn't seem unusual to was me. 
How did Soderbergh and Fincher get involved? Soderbergh was somebody I knew a little bit because I've interviewed him over the years. I did a Q&A with him at the event at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art for the Nick, and we got to talking at a dinner afterward. He said to me, What exactly is it you want to do with your career anyway? And I said, Well, that's very sweet. You think I have a career. But I told him I'd had this idea for a book that I'd been trying to do for a while but couldn't sell. It had been turned down twice. Steve McQueen had told me that he thought it should be a documentary, and I mentioned that to Soderbergh. I expected him to say, That's nice. What should we order for dinner? But he offered to finance it. So we pitched it around a couple of places, and then he called up David Fincher, who had a relationship with Netflix. I go to the meeting at Netflix, and I ask David, So how do we pitch this? What do you think? And he says, Oh, we're not going to pitch. We're just going to go in there and tell them what we're going to do. And that's what we did. He operates a little bit differently than I do. How did you go about translating what you thought of as a book into a film? Did you have visuals in mind? I had done an outline and a sample chapter which didn't really lend itself to a movie. What I realized was, is, pardon me, was that if I used clips, I didn't have to spend so much time describing things. I could just let the clip play and your eye will go where it wants to go. That was really liberating. The question became, what do I want to show people? What's been missing from the conversation about great movies? Billy D. Williams in Lady Sings the Blues, to me the epitome of glamour in movies. Gordon Parks's The Learning Tree, that incredible sequence of black people riding horses silhouetted by the sunrise. It was about trying to isolate these moments that would help me put the story across. The movie roughly covers about the 10 years between 1968 and 1978. Why was that where you put your focus? 68 was the year of The Night of the Living Dead, which was an incidentally but incredibly political movie. Directed by George Romero, its black protagonist faces off against white zombies and armed vigilantes. This was the year that Martin Luther King was killed when you had when you had all of the demonstrations and political activity. At the same time, there seemed to be this awakening of the potential of black involvement in the movies. Then, in 1978, everything comes crashing down with The Wiz, the $24 million musical adaptation of The Wizard of Oz, starring Diana Ross and Michael Jackson, that bombed at the box office. When movies from this period are usually discussed, we hear about black exploitation as if that's the sole definition of movies that came out at the time. But that's reductive and not just true. Pardon me, and just not true. In 1972, pardon me again, 1972 was a huge Oscar year for black talent, starting with Isaac Hayes winning for Best Song, Shaft, but also the acting nominations for Cicely Tyson and Diana Ross and Paul Winfield, and the screenplay nominations for Suzanne DePass and Lon Elder III. Tyson, Winfield, and Elder were nominated for Sounder, Ross and DePass for Lady Sings the Blues. The movie includes interviews with people like Samuel L. Jackson, Harry Belafonte, and Whoopi Goldberg, 
You film them in an empty movie theater, which gives the interviews an evocative, almost nostalgic feeling, and breaks up the clips. How did you settle on that idea? I wanted them to be in a theater because the movie, in a lot of ways, is about a kind of religion, the religion of movies. Theaters are the churches of that religion, so I felt like we should capture them in full. Let's show the whole theater, the rafters, the light flickering from the projection, all of those visual cues. I didn't want it to just be an exhausting pile-on of clips. We get that at the Oscars every year, which provided an object lesson in what not to do. You were an adolescent in the 70s. What are your memories as a moviegoer? It was a sweet time. I remember my dad taking me to see Cotton Comes to Harlem, and just hearing that music and the bass coming through the speakers. For me and lots of people I knew, it was thrilling because it felt like a time of more possibilities for black people. It wasn't only Sidney Poitier anymore. It didn't last. Later, there was the Eddie Murphy syndrome, where the black person had to save the movie by himself, or they would be the first to die, like Sam Jackson in Goodfellas, or Glenn Turman in Gremlins. As soon as you saw them go, oh, pardon me, as soon as you saw them, you'd go, okay, let's start the clock. In the 70s, there was a sense of relief. It was this lessening of the burden of representation. And what do you want to do next? I don't know. I've been chipping away at this forever, just trying to get it done. And I still can't believe that it's actually happening. In a way, I don't really care what happens next. I'm old enough now that it's not like my career is riding on it. People have said that you feel depressed when it's all over, but right now I'm just elated. As surreal as the black experience in movies has been, it feels even more surreal that I got to make this thing about it. Still with entertainment news, this also from the New York Times. What to watch. The end of Atlanta changes everything. Donald Glover's masterpiece was a different kind of prestige TV. It never explained itself and was all the better for it. This was posted November 10th, written by Niela Orr. Atlanta, the surrealist comma-dramedy, whose fourth and final season just reached its end, specialized in leaving indelible, discordant images in the minds of its audience, like a television stuck between channels. Its finale was no different. Following shows like St. Elsewhere, Seinfeld, The Sopranos, and Twin Peaks The Return, classics whose endings sparked critical pandemonium, it concludes with an episode that has the potential to change the way viewers consider everything that came before. But that finale's hypnotic grit, its mix of the dreamlike and the realistic, the hypnagogic potency of films like The Matrix and Inception, and the acerbic urgency of an Amiri Baraka poem, also has its roots in an earlier episode from this season, one that captures much of what the show did so well. The premise of the episode titled Crank That Killer, which aired in October, is absurdly tragic comic. 
there is a silly, serial pardon me, killer on the loose in Georgia's capital, but he's only hunting people who participated in a viral video challenge from 2007, filming themselves dancing to the song Crank That by Sulia Boy. Unfortunately, that includes at least one Atlanta character. There is hilarious old footage on YouTube of Alfred Miles, played by Brian Tyree Henry, now famous as a rapper called Paperboy. To prove that, Alfred responds to his fear like many Americans would. He goes shopping, disguising himself with sunglasses and a generic cap. Unsurprisingly, he is identified right away. Only famous people trying to blend in come in dressed like that, says a pretzel stand cashier. There are only two people there, she says, wearing shades and hats without logos on them. Alfred and another guy she identifies as Chris Evans. She's not the only one to spot Alfred. He's also being followed by an ominous stranger. As he banters with another worker, we see this pursuer... Aim a gun, then bullets fly, glass shatters, and we enter a familiar American scene. It's here, though, that the show moves into the fanciful mode that has made it one of TV's most daring series. Almost everyone in this mall, we learn, is packing heat. Instead of a lone shooter, what we actually get is a cartoonish, all-against-all firefight as preposterous as something from one of Evans's Captain America flicks. The scene takes the armed showdowns of westerns and action movies and multiplies them into an almost comic mayhem, bullets ricocheting while the gunless run zigzagging escape routes. This is Atlanta. With intimidable swagger and respect for its audience's intelligence, it undoes expectations, turning again and again into gloriously absurdist territory. And like the comic Cat Williams, who won an Emmy for a guest appearance on the show, Atlanta can't resist making the extra joke. Even as Alfred scrambles to safety, he's accosted by an aspiring musician who wants to rap for him. People are always trying to audition for Alfred. In Atlanta, as in the rest of this country, the hustle never stops, even when bullets are flying. This confluence of horror and whimsy, a world full of plenty but also suffused with violence, has been the show's forte. It is as though Adrian Kennedy's 1964 play, Funny House of a Negro, were adapted as a sitcom. Life is inherently farcical, living in America is comically contradictory, and dwelling in this country while black makes for prismatically dark comedy. Much like American consumers, Atlanta returned to the mall over and over again. A mall episode in the second season featured characters committing robbery and gift card grifts. The mall is where cash flows, and thus a chance to siphon resources for yourself. Another episode extolled, from a middle-aged man's perspective, the beauty of the mall in its early hours before the teenagers show up. 
In the final season's premiere, we watched as the characters Ern and Van, played by Donald Glover and Zazie Beetz, circled a mall and kept running into their exes, who seemed to loop around the grounds in a kind of purgatory. This could be a joke about how everyone knows everybody in Atlanta, or about the labyrinthine design of shopping centers, which, like casinos, want you to forget time itself. But the joke, like every other bit in the show, is thankfully never explained. The mall is a place of plenty, a dream of consumption. Across the length of Atlanta, we see characters burying, pardon, pardon me again, characters buying into their own versions of that dream, however skeptically or reluctantly. Their clothes, homes, jobs, and cars gradually improve. Alfred finds success as a rapper, though the experience is not quite what he imagined. The finale is set in part at a strip mall, and it asks its audience to consider the consumer choices that surround us. The highbrow or the lowbrow option, fast food or fast, pardon me, fast food or fine dining, the obvious or the obscure. Donald Glover, the show's creator, has navigated this tension himself. In a 2018 New Yorker profile, Tad Friend noted Glover's anxiety about recognition, one similar to the angst his characters experience. Quoting, he feels constantly watched but rarely seen. In the past, many black television series dressed for success, over-explaining references, watering down jokes, or building cozy versions of black life to ensure their characters were watched in large numbers, even if they weren't truly recognized. Glover's TV masterpiece, aided by the specialization of the prestige TV and streaming eras, was different, understated, obsessed with the in-joke, the nod between familiars. As in the chaos of Crank That Killer, the show always asked those watching to trust it, to feel a little unsafe. In return, it would provide an escape hatch, in the form of a joke that only led to another eerie, antic place. The gunplay consuming that mall, for instance, is, un pardon me, is intercut with a scene that has Ern and Darius, played by Lakeith Stanfield, in a van outside where a sneaker reseller offers them ultra-rare Nikes if he can watch them kiss. Their faces inch together as Alfred dodges the killer. A strange juxtaposition of attraction and retreat, repulsion and titillation, coercion and acquiescence. Pardon me. Although it remained acclaimed by critics, Atlanta never really reclaimed the ratings it enjoyed in its first two seasons, probably owing in part to long gaps in production while its stars built their careers in film. As Atlanta went on, it became aptly more black-famous, in inverse proportion to the ascension of its actors. Glover's initial strategy, he told Friend, had been to Trojan Horse FX, his network, by staying vague about what he planned to produce. If I told them what I really wanted to do, it wouldn't have gotten made. Like Alfred slipping into that mall, Glover didn't try to make himself easily visible. 
He stuck out simply because of being different from so much else. He was willing to forego explanation and let his work resonate in weird ways. Atlanta swathed its sensibility in sunglasses and a logoless hat. It went incognito. If you knew, you knew. Next article from the New York Times Book Reviews, written by Tayari Jones. South to America, a journey below the Mason-Dixon to understand the soul of a nation by Imani Perry is the book. At the start of South to America, Imani Perry implores the reader, please remember, while this book is not a history, it is a true story. I tried to keep these instructions in mind not always easy with a narrative so scrupulously researched and teeming with facts and citations, but ultimately I discarded them. After all, Perry addresses everything from hip-hop to the United Fruit Company and her own grandmother. Any attempt to classify this ambitious work, which straddles genre, kicks down the fourth wall, dances with poetry, engages with literary criticism, and flits from journalism to memoir to academic writing, well, that's a fool's errand and only undermines this insightful, ambitious, and moving project. Perry is an unabashed movement baby, raised by intellectual freedom fighter parents. This is no both sides affair. The conviction of this book is that race and racism are fundamental values of the South. That, quote, the creation of racial slavery in the colonies was a gateway to habits and dispositions that ultimately became the commonplace ways of doing things in this country. In other words, the South is America, and its history and influence cannot be dismissed as an embarrassing relative at the nation's holiday pardon me at the nation's holiday dinner table inspired by albert murray's 1971 memoir come travelogue south to a very old place perry travels to over a dozen southern cities and towns excavating both histories and modern realities she begins at Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. We meet Shields Green, a black South Carolinian known as the Emperor of New York, who was executed along with John Brown. His heroism has been nearly lost to history, and to compound the tragedy after he was hanged, his body was given to Winchester Medical College for dissection. In telling his story, Perry reveals the first of many patterns in the quilt stitched in these pages. At each stop, she recounts an atrocity, but also resistance, and she does not flinch when documenting the consequences. From the three essays that examine Alabama, it's clear that despite a childhood in New England, Perry's heart belongs to the idiosyncratic Yellowhammer State. Her tone grows tender as she recalls her dancing cousins on the foot-washing Baptist, or, pardon me, or the foot-washing Baptists. Her portraits of her grandmother combine elegiac longing and the rigor of a historian setting the record straight. 
Equally moving are the dispatches from her mother's native Louisiana. Perry vowed to visit and contemplate as much of the South as possible for this project. This ambition is both a gift and an obstacle. The benefit of such a large canvas is that patterns are easily identified. Historical injustice, such as the Wilmington Massacre, cannot be dismissed as a one-off, nor can the contemporary violence of Dylan Roof or the storied resistance of Rosa Parks. Perry finds that one hidden virtue of an unsure genealogy is a vast archive of ways of being learned from birth. It is inevitable, though, that all sites will not receive equal care and attention, and clearly her loyalty is to Alabama. An acolyte of Toni Morrison, Perry nevertheless takes pointed issue with the Nobel laureate's characterization of the women of Mobile. I understand her pain, for it is the same feeling conjured in me as I read the chapter on Atlanta, my hometown. While in some places Perry has the benefit of a guide, here she doesn't cite the personal conversations that led to her insights, and the resulting observations feel a bit chilly. Perry declares that, quote, the major metro metropolis of the South doesn't have a sufficient mass transit system or a polyglot culture. But she goes on to suggest that survivors of dirt roads take comfort instead in the shiny baubles hawked in Lenox Mall. Well, that hurt my feelings. Wounded pride aside, it must be said that this work, though sometimes uneven, is an essential meditation on the South, its relationship to American culture, even Americanness itself. This is, as Perry puts it, not a preservation, this is an intervention. For too long, the South has been scapegoated and reduced to a backward land on the other side of some translucent but impenetrable barrier. Beyond the literal divide of the Mason-Dixon, Perry is fixated on the line that divides past and present. On her travels, she encounters a Confederate reenactor celebrating a birthday, though he is nostalgia and revisionism made flesh, Perry finds him surprisingly pleasant. Assuming he'll speak about northern aggression, Perry chooses not to question him, and this, too, is the legacy of the intimacy of slavery. We have lived together for so long that we believe we can read each other's minds. During her visit to Maryland, Perry sees people wearing Muslim shirts and straw hats while laboring in a field, her insides clench, fearing that she is witnessing some cruel antebellum cosplay. But as she gets closer, Perry hears the men speaking Spanish. She was, quote, sad and also relieved. Workers, not reenactors. But, of course, this underscores the refrain of this immersion in Southern American life and history. To what extent are we all reenactors of the nation's brutal history? This work, and I use the term for both Perry's labor and its fruit, is determined to provoke a return to the other legacy of the South, the ever-urgent struggle toward freedom. And that book is available as an audiobook on Audiobooks Now, I believe. 
And that brings me to the end of our time for this week. Thank you for joining us. This is the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by the Joslyn Charitable Trust. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.